Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors this week. It's Linda. Linda Lynda.com is the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash longform. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash longform. Lynda.com, it's for problem solvers. It's for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Uh, Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, boost your Photoshop skills, whatever you're looking for to improve yourself, to improve your professional life, your creative life, go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Uh, They really do have a tremendous number of courses. Uh, You can learn about bootstrapping your business. You can learn about screenwriting fundamentals, getting things done, whatever you feel like you need to improve your uh, professional, your creative life. Uh, it's there for you on lynda.com. With a lynda.com membership, you get unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for just one flat rate. Uh, so here's what you should do. Go to lynda.com slash longform. Start that 10-day free trial and uh, see what you want to learn. Thanks very much to them. And here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Hey. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, guys. Hey. Welcome home, Evan. Thanks. How was your trip? Uh, it was fantastic. I ju- I'm, this is not this is not uh, theater for the podcast audience. I'm just seeing Evan for the first time. <laughs> That's true. It's, this is Verite. This is, this, is, uh, this is real life. Yeah. Um, this is hey hey um, when people stop acting nice and get and start getting real, it's the introduction to the long form podcast. <laughs> Who is on the show this week? I didn't even I didn't even <laughs> let him answer. Actually, this is actually very real because you actually give a shit about yeah, how the trip was. Yeah, yes, not, I do. Not at all it interested in the answer. Yeah, yeah, totally accurate. <laughs> I was just at the doctor. Whoa, uh, what are we doing here today? Well, the, I just spent like twenty three hours traveling back here yeah. without sleeping, so I'm not in any condition to tell you about my trip. So okay. we'll talk about that later. Okay. Who's on the podcast this week? Well, it relates to uh, you were just in Vietnam, and I asked you about your trip. I was genuinely interested, even though you're going to Vietnam, you didn't seem to care. Uh, uh, but I was interested, and all you want to talk about was the food. Yeah. And that relates to who's on the podcast. The uh, person who's on the podcast is Adam Platt, who is the food critic for New York Magazine. Uh, this is a little bit of like, you guys remember when I talked to uh, Marguerite Fox? Yeah, like sort of not, I remember that. Not a, not a uh, traditional magazine writer. It was like just a little bit of a cheat because I really wanted to talk to her. I, I really just wanted to talk to Adam Platt about what it's like to be a restaurant critic. You don't need to apologize to us. I feel like I need to apologize to you all the time. I feel like I need to apologize generally support, all su- the time. I support your, uh, I support your the um, the breadth and uh, diversity you bring to the show. I forgive you. Thanks, guys. Uh, anyway, talk to Adam Flat uh, about what it is like to be a restaurant critic, and uh, it sounds like a lot of fun, actually. Is he like a one of the like undercover? Thing he uh, in in dramatic fashion put his face on the cover of New York Magazine last year and revealed himself. 
Yeah, he does. Uh, he decided to forego the charade of anonymity. Are, are people still doing the anonymous food critic thing in the, the age of the internet? Yes, I think they so. are. Yeah. How do you Although do it's that? Kind of a joke. Do you have to like be like never put a photo of me online? Like, yeah, if I'm was, at a party, do not take a picture of me. He, he was actually able to keep a photo of himself off, uh, offline, I think, but it was still bullshit because everyone knew who he was. Right, right, right. I'm excited to listen to this one. Yeah, uh, we got some sponsors. First sponsor is Casper. Uh, you want a great mattress. You don't want to go to a horrific mattress showroom. Trust me on this one. Casper will mail you a mattress. It's a great mattress that's a fraction of the price of what you're going to pay uh, anywhere else. And that price is going to be beat by a further $50 if you go to casper.com slash longform, pick up a mattress, support the show, sleep better, be more productive, succeed. You got that better sleep. You might have some more time on your hands. Fill that time by sending a newsletter. Mm. Start mm. an email newsletter with the good people at Tiny Letter. Yeah. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It is uh, done by the good people at MailChimp, and we thank them very much for their sponsorship. Uh, here's Max with Adam oh. Platt. <laughs> <laughs> we did it together. That's sweet. That's sweet. <laughs> Well, hello, Adam Platt. How are you? Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, making the time. Sorry that I sent you to the wrong address. That's uh, okay. <laughs> I like Brooklyn. Let's go. Let's go. Start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Your dad was an ambassador. My dad was actually yes, he was an ambassador. He was a foreign service officer. Uh-huh. He was a China specialist, and so uh, I spent my youth with my large, equally voracious brothers. Uh, we lived in Taiwan when we were little kids. And then we lived in Hong Kong and had various travels in between, and I ended up graduating from high school in Tokyo. One of the things, really sort of the, I'd say that the main thing that expats do in this expat world is they, you know, food has always been the way that, you know, it's really the easiest way to commune with a culture. Mm-hmm. So we spent a lot of time going out and eating. And Taiwan was actually, we didn't know it at the time, but it was a real uh, sort of hotbed for certainly Chinese cooking. Uh, General Tsao's chicken came from Taiwan. Taiwan was full of uh, mainland refugees who fled uh, uh, the communist uh, revolution. They're on the losing side. Uh, Many of them were great chefs, cooked for the mandarins, cooked in the sort of Beijing courts. And uh, one of the places that we used to go was something called Mongolian barbecue. Mongolian barbecue really wasn't it's not Mongolian. It's really Taiwanese. They invented it. <laughs> and this might, might have been one of the first places. And so you'd go, you'd line. It was really sort of a buffet. It was this sort of a little rural restaurant. I remember fringed by rice patties. And you'd line up and you'd uh, sort of create your barbecue. You'd line up. You'd get a little bit of lamb, a uh, little bit of beef. It'd be marinated and all these, you know, wonderful to us at the time, and still. How old are you when you're? I'm, I'm six. You're six. And you're, six, seven, five, six, seven. And you remember like this? I don't. I don't even remember anything from when well, I was come six. Come on, you would remember this. I mean, this was not. <laughs> I guess this so. was not your, your Wheaties cream. This was like you remember this, and so and the flavors are very like you know these very sort of umami laced you know, uh, there's coriander, there's soy, and so anyways, you give it to the guy and he'd cook it on this big grill, and then he'd give it to you with these fresh-baked sesame buns, and you'd eat the meat inside the bun. 
So it's really sort of a hamburger. I'm so hungry right now. Already. There's Mongolian bar. There's one in, in uh, Rockland County here in New York where I take my kids. Of course, they think it's ludicrous, but I think it tastes like sort of home. You were a food critic. Correct. You think about food all the time. Sometimes, yeah. Well, I, before that, I thought about food all the time, but yeah. Are you starting there because like, we're going to talk about food for an hour now? Or is that really the first memory you have of living in Taiwan is, is that barbecue? That's a very vivid memory to me, actually. And also what we used to do, I'll just finish this little story. Sure. Uh, the grown-ups would drink beer and we'd drink Coke. So this is the first time I ever drank Coke. And so you drink Coke, you finish it. They sold bottle rockets at this place in packages. And so you'd send, you'd buy these bottle rockets and you'd shoot them out of the rice paddies while the sun was going down. Out of the Coke bottle. Yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah, it sounds good. I great. still remember that. And you would ride it. Sounds the, magical. You, it was actually sort of magical. Now, so that's that would be my sort of first mega food memory. And uh, that, so that happened in Taiwan. And like when we kept on, you know, we moved from city to city, uh, eating was a way that you we would. Uh, it was a way to sort of try and get in touch with the culture. And also, when you're moving around like that, it sounds glamorous, but it's also it's fundamentally nerve-wracking and anxiety-producing. I, I think I went to nine different schools. Yeah, I mean, were you like an outgoing kid? No. Shy. Passive-aggressive. Asthmatic. Weebly would be the word my mother would use. <laughs> weebly. You were weebly. My brother, Oliver Platt, who's a well-known actor, was the opposite of me. Oliver was outgoing, perhaps too outgoing. In these environments, you'd sort of become a caricature of yourself. So I was sort of perhaps too ingoing. He'd be outgoing. And because so, like you guys would show I was up somewhere and have to one. Like, assert yourself. Yeah, and you have this personality you take, you with, yeah. take with you. So I was the quiet one. He was the, you know, the Mr. Outside. I was the Mr. Inside. And in our family, uh, we traveled a lot and we ate a lot. And in due course, we have another brother, young, youngest brother named Nick. Uh, in due course, uh, we we grew to great size. <laughs> that's your first. Uh, that's that's, what that's your first fat joke. I'm, I'm kind of surprised uh, it took that long. I think that's my last fat joke, actually. But you know, the, I got to tell you, man, reading your stuff, there are a lot of fat jokes, and you're. Is, I was expecting a far, far more rotund man. Oh, I'm fat. Come on, that's bullshit. I think you could probably do a, a pretty amusing column about professional gourmands and their body images. <laughs> yeah, but my body image is like, oh, it's not you are a. You are, you know, as you can see, we are all like the, the we are all these large. We're large. Yeah, I mean, you're a big guy. We're big, sort of Viking-sized guys with yeah. big, big bucket heads. <laughs> so we can absorb a lot of weight, but when we take our shirts off, it's something to behold. Well, I don't need you to take your shirt off. Well, I'm just you saying you look good. I was expecting a thank larger you. man. All right, thank you. A well, wider, I'm a large a man, but a wider man. A wider man. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, as a young man, you and your uh, fellow large brothers. Or traveling the world, and and uh, and food was this staple of your life. It was one of them, certainly. I mean, a staple of everyone's yeah. life, but per, per, but particularly yeah. for you. And and what did you want to be? Was the plan? My ambition was as the oldest son. So uh, when you live this sort of gilded overseas life, I think uh, the, your first, at least my first instinct, was to try and perpetuate it. And so I thought that I would uh, be, say, a foreign service officer or a dashing foreign, like my father, or a dashing foreign correspondent, like uh, a lot of our friends were. And so I went to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and I figured quite quickly, figured out quite quickly that I was not cut out for a bureaucratic job, even if I could get one, I was not cut out for it. And then in, I went into journalism. I spent two, two years, a couple of years in Hong Kong. Went back. To Hong Kong. And, and there are a lot of foreign service kids who end up in journalism. It's one of these sort of, you know, it allows you, because when you grow up overseas, you know, this is probably more than you want to know, but you sort of, 
you know, you're on the margins of things. You are constantly observing stuff. Right. You're not, you're, you're, you tend not to be involved in a lot of stuff. And you sort of feel uh, sort of removed, but also uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Because you're you not know. of a place. You're not of a place. You're always on the move. You're always visiting. Anyway, so I was, went to Hong Kong, and I was a business writer in Hong Kong. And I figured out there that I didn't want to be a business writer and that I also wanted to be a sort of a, 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 a I also figured I wanted to come back to the States. I really wanted to be a magazine feature writer. Like I wanted to try more long form kind of thing. And also I felt that if I kept on living this sort of expat cycle that you would never have a home, that you sort of turn into this ghost wandering you start from, to have from place to place. Instinct. Yeah. You know, it, it was sort of, an, it's, time, it's time to try and build a home, uh-huh. basically. And so I went, uh, I spent a year at uh, New York. At, I went to the journalism school at Columbia. And then I um, started a series of magazine jobs. When are we talking about here? Uh, when? We're talking about the early 80s, mid-80s. Okay. Uh, and for, for about 10 years, I did contract magazine work. And I wrote for, uh, I, I moved to, to New York. I got a contract uh, with a New Yorker to do uh, Talk of the Town writing. Yeah, I read a bunch of those. Yeah, they're online now. Yeah, I went back and read a bunch of them. I think they're wonderful. <laughs> you're, you're talking the towns? <laughs> I, sort of, I thought they were quite good. Anyway, they're great. I mean, that, was, that was my idea, was to, to sort of to be, you know, the E.B. White, Lee, you know, like most people who want to be long-form writers, yeah. my dream is to work for The New Yorker. And to write those kind of long-form feature, maundering on about, uh, you know, uh, whatever. One of the things in those Talk of the Town pieces, like, the first one was about R.W. Apple. Yeah, and I was in D.C. at that time. That's, that's got me that contract. Here's the thing that caught, caught my eye in that R.W. Apple one, though, is uh start talking about what he likes to eat. R.W. Apple, like, yeah. What, yeah. Sauerkraut and sausages. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, he, he had the all his favorite... Uh, favorite uh, uh, brandy regions from France <laughs> yeah. up on his wall, yeah. and he had his you know famous Turnbull Asser shirts. And right, and then the, and then the second one you wrote was uh, about the White House mess. That's impressive. I'm yeah, not trying that, to impress you. I want to talk that, about it. But that's true. That's, but it, it seemed like even then you were writing like these kind of dispatches. Yes. And still, like food was creeping into food's creeping in. I, I found that I uh, when I moved to New York and that that contract ended, and I started writing uh, travel stories. I contracted a bunch of travel magazines. I wrote for the women's magazines. I kept writing for the New York Observer. I wrote a a, uh, a New Yorker diary column. Uh, these are not online, sadly, because you know, but they were. I wrote about my life, and I write one a month, which is about right for a column. And a lot of food kept creeping into those little essays. And uh, one of my editors at some point um, went to work for New York Magazine. And uh, Gail Green, who was the August columnist, August food writer for New York for years and years and years, had announced her retirement. And so they were looking around for a food writer. And I think I think the thing about, about uh, restaurant writing, food writing, is that, uh, you know, I, had, I clearly had a lot of experience in eating, but I didn't have a lot of experience in cooking. And uh, but I could write about sort of I could make the experience come alive. At least I was that was my sort of professional. So that that's you know as a, as a jack of all trades magazine writer that that's what I could do. And they wanted a, uh, somebody who could, much like Gail had, uh, treat uh, sort of report on the New York restaurant scene as sort of a uh, a cultural event, mm-hmm. which is what it is. And so when when did you get that job? That was in. The early aughts. Mm-hmm. I believe it was in 2001. And as you were sort of like going for that job, yeah. 
where where did your other magazine ambitions sit at that uh, point? I don't like, know. Well, is this is this interesting? But yeah, uh, <laughs> even the contracts that you get year to year are fairly hair raising because they're only year to year, and you don't have health benefits, and you have to fight for everything you get into these publications. And so I was at that stage. I was in my late thirties. I just got married. My wife and I were adopting our first child. So when a magazine comes along and says we will give you a weekly column and you will have health benefits, and you have a steady salary, you sort of really don't even care what you're writing about to a certain extent. I mean, of course you do. Sure. But it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's something that you really have to, you know, take seriously if they offer it to you. And I, I certainly didn't think I was going to be doing it for 15 years. <laughs> but uh, it's turned out that way. Well, why do you think it's turned out that way? Why, why have you been doing it for 15 years? Well, I think it's because a lot of reasons. I mean, it turned out, quite quickly that it was a, a subject for which I had a great affinity. Restaurants in New York are actually a, a sort of a form of theater. And when you're writing about them, you're really recording this sort of scene, which is sometimes funny, sometimes dramatic, but it really is you know, it's a cultural preoccupations of the city. So, I mean, for instance, Brooklyn, right? If you were going to, if you wanted to describe the quote unquote Brooklyn, whatever it is, the the Brooklyn event of the last decade. One of the first things that you would do is to do it through restaurants. I mean, that would be that would be sort of the way actually many people have done it, through food, through restaurants, through beer to chocolate makers and pickle makers, and that's that's uh, that's what restaurants always were in New York, and uh, also during the time that I've been doing this job. They became that way throughout the country. Yeah, I mean, you've got this, you, this, this sort of—I wouldn't call it—you you might, you would call it a movement, I guess, the sort of locavore, locally grown. But restaurants became much more journalistically; they took more, 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 more of a central part of the scene than they had been before. And I remember, like, when I was in the middle, after I'd been doing it for a while, a friend of mine goes, he goes, you know, being a restaurant critic. Uh, these days is really like being a rock critic during the 60s. You're sort of at the, more the, of at the center of something than you were before. Like, y- you think food is among the the most sort of like just culturally interesting things in New York? Well, no, not only New York, but the country. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's like, certainly for the quote-unquote millennial generation, you know, the generation that grew up on Starbucks as opposed to frozen food and McDonald's, sort of the generation that's been more coddled and is sort of looking for a way to express themselves. The great change during the course of my doing this job is that the culture of the kitchen, which was is the culture that we today know as sort of the Anthony Bourdain, no reservations. And certainly if you look at the restaurants themselves, if you look at the restaurants in, say, in New York City, the ones that, that are the, the hot restaurants, the influential restaurants, these places all used to be controlled by front-of-the-house people with bow ties and accents who would explain to your parents what they should be eating, okay? So the new restaurants, basically kitchen slaves storm, and I've written about this, they stormed the barricades. They took it over. The, the, you know, Mario Batali, who was one of the original sort of great uh, uh, leaders of the great kitchen slave revolution, uh, was the first person to do a lot of things, actually. He's one of the first people to sort of play the kitchen slave music out into his dining room. So he's Zeppelin, U2, you know, tourists who came in from wherever, Iowa, would suddenly be sort of bombarded by this, or or not, or even from uptown, would be bombarded from, you know, the Pixies blasting out. 
also Batali started serving aggressively the kind of food that chefs classically had liked to eat, like, you know, uh, calf's brains, all kinds of strange offal in his pasta, you know, these sort of rustic specialties, which uh, just a few years ago would have been much, quote unquote, fancier uh, haute cuisine dishes. So he started to do that. And then you had the whole generation of, of people that came after him who took his cue and uh, did all sorts of interesting things with it. I mean, it, it, to the point where these days, uh, you know, j- basically the kitchen itself is physically in the middle of the whole thing, right? You have the kitchen. Yeah. All the restaurants that are opening are bars, so they're kitchen bars. It's the old, you know, the Japanese had that old model, the old omakase model, where you'd sit around the bar and the chef would, the chef has always been the, the head in, in, in Japanese dining and culture. And the star. Right. And that's really what's happened here. And also, it's not just the chef, it's also the culture of the chef. And, um, you know, David Chang is the other obvious, obvious sort of leader of the great kitchen slave revolution. And Chang has basically ridden this wave of, you could call it cultural populism. You know, he's created this sort of way of, uh, you know, the food is all about comfort and heavy taste and integrity, the integrity of the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Tom Colicchio is another one. And Colicchio obviously has huge influence on television, but before he did television, he was a great chef in the Danny Meyer empire. And Danny Meyer is obviously uh, the great sort of front of the house man of his generation. But then Colicchio went and he, he started this restaurant called Kraft. It was actually one of the first restaurants I, uh, that I reviewed. And in Kraft, what Colicchio did was that he took um, the again the things that chefs have always paid attention to ingredients technique uh, presentation and his first idea was just to have ingredients stuff on the plate and sauces and you'd put them together right but th- that was actually too radical for, for the diners so he made composed dishes but he took all these things like the perfect uh, head of the woods mushroom foraged in the, the woods of Oregon the perfect scallop lovingly procured off the coast of Maine. And he told you where these places came from Mm -hmm. with a minimum of artifice, but also with this, he imbued them with this New York sense of snobbery and occasion. So Kraft was really the sort of the seminal restaurant of this, this sort of, you know, local culture that I'm talking about. And every 30 years or so, you have that kind of seminal restaurant. And a lot of some, a lot of the chefs, including David Chang, came out of Kraft. Hey, it's Max. Going to pause things with Adam for a second and uh, tell you about a few of our sponsors this week. Up first is Casper. If you are in the market for a new mattress, uh, you really would be crazy not to check out Casper. First of all, their mattresses are incredible. They feel absolutely top of the line, just the right sink, just the right bounce, but they don't cost anything close to what a new mattress will run you at the store. Twins are just 500 bucks. Kings are like 950. Uh, here's how they do it. Casper saves money by sending the mattresses right to your house. They've removed the retail markup from the process, and mattresses are notoriously uh, marked up in the store. I got one myself. It really couldn't be easier. The mattress just shows up at your place in a box. It's kind of amazing that they can fit it in there. I don't really know how they do that, but they do. Uh, And you just open it up and lay down. No store, 
no hassle. Plus, it's completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and returns on every mattress they sell. So if you're new to new mattress, there's really no reason not to give Casper a shot. Uh, plus, if you go to casper.com slash longform, that's casper.com slash longform, and use the code longform at checkout, you'll get 50 bucks off. It's a great deal. Uh, save yourself the time and money of buying a new mattress at the store and give Casper a try. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. Also sponsoring the show this week, Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors in the world, all for just a quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Uh, Here's how they do it. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Uh, Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the index fund revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. Uh, some other things you should know about uh, Wealthfront, they manage over $2 billion in client assets, that's billion with a B, and they've saved millions of dollars on taxes for their clients. Uh, so here's what you should do. If you are interested in checking Wealthfront out, go to wealthfront.com slash longform. Your first 10 grand will be managed for free. Go see how they do what they do. Just so we're clear here, uh, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. So if you're interested in more about that, Go to Wealthfront.com and read their full disclosure. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. And uh, let's get back to Adam Platt. Let's uh, let's drill down a little bit. Drill down. I'm interested in how you practically do your job. Okay. I don't know. Maybe we should start at like when you you when you got the job and started started learning how to do this. Yeah. What did you have to learn about being a restaurant critic? Well, being somebody who was not incredibly well-versed in recipes, you have a couple of choices. You can focus on the food or you can focus on the scene. Uh, what I chose to do and what I still do in all my reviews is that I try to sort of recreate the experience of dining at these restaurants for them. Because certainly in New York, you know, you're talking about dropping $450, $500 a night. Right. Like, ultimately, do you see what you're doing as this giving someone guidance about whether or not they should go to this place and have dinner? Ultimately, you're telling them where, whether or not dropping that $500 is worth it. But you're also creating a picture for the legions of people who will never would never dream of dropping that absurd amount of money on a restaurant, this kind of absurd restaurant. But you want, they're reading it for vicarious pleasure. And uh, they're reading it to sort of experience this weird world that is not only restaurants, but also New York City. So, you you know, as a writer, you really, uh, what I tried to do was I tried to recreate that experience. Mm-hmm. And so you start out, uh, I also like to like to try and put the restaurants in some kind of broader context. That's just me. I mean, it's like I wanted to make it seem a little more interesting than what it might be. You seem interested in the context. I'm interested in the context, but I, I would try, like I've been trying to do in this interview, probably with I don't know, with, with, with mixed success, is I would try to pu- actually put, say if I reviewed uh, Batali's Baba, which I didn't, but I, w- I would try and try to put it in, in the context, not only of Batali and his career, but maybe in sort of the, the culture of the Italian restaurant and how it's changed. So you try mm-hmm. to do that. You've got to do it in a paragraph. You don't have much time to do that. Yeah. Then you try and set the scene as it is. Like, what's the room? It's, it's really sort of here. I, I'm walking in the room. What does it look like? Paragraph, you describe what it looks like. Then you sit down. 
you describe the meal. Basically, go through it. Start with the appetizers, main courses, dessert. And I remember I had, when I first had this job, I had to quit a doctrinaire editor. And I did a review where the desserts weren't at the end. And he goes, hey, what, what are you doing? What's going on? <laughs> Let's get that dessert at the end. So anyway, if you read a ply review, still, sadly to this day. Desserts at the end every time. It will, it will mostly hew to that structure, which is, which is, uh, it is a, it is, it's a service, little piece of service journalism designed for you to actually feel like you're eating this meal. Right. From A A to B. Right. The chronology is helpful just as a structure. It's it's very, it's helpful as a structure. Um, I used to use people who I'd eat with and quote them. I don't do that so much anymore. Still sometimes. Sometimes. You know, I find, you know, basically you want, you want people to enjoy reading it. I mean, you're trying to balance, I mean, maybe it's not a balance, but it seems like you're trying to do these two things. One is tell people whether or not they should eat there, Correct. which is a relatively straightforward, straightforward. Maybe that's just like your star rating almost. Right. And then you also want to entertain people. Right. And I think I think you want to entertain them first. And second, you want to tell them whether they want to eat there or not. And the thing about, the thing about being a critic, especially being a restaurant critic, uh, it's highly, it's a highly um, subjective business. It's, yeah. it's the most subjective of all. I guess you could call them critical disciplines. You know, sort of. Book critics all read the same book. Movie critics read, watch the same movie. TV critics see the same film. If you're a restaurant critic, and m- many critics have said this, and it's true, uh, you know, the uh, experience that you have at any restaurant, and I don't care what kind of restaurant it is varies not just day to day or what ha- what week you happen to go there but really almost minute to minute i mean if you're there you go there at 6 and maybe the chef hasn't arrived yet and the people who are sitting next to you they haven't cranked up the music the people who are sitting next to you aren't squawking loudly it, it all changes all the time so as a critic over time what you want to all, all you can do i think as a restaurant critic is you want to sort of create some kind of settled point of view which readers, they may disagree with you, they may agree with you, but at least it's settled so that readers will sort of know what to think when they're reading you. Right. Since it can be so up and down, you have to be super consistent. Uh, you try. And I think that's sort of, sort of true of any critic, but you try to be consistent and you try to also write knowledgeably and intelligently about your subject in a way that sort of people find find uh, interesting or amusing to read. And it's, sort of, it's easier said than done. It's not, it's not that easy. I think the other challenge with food in particular is just finding a way to describe That's brutal. how something tastes. It's brutal. And the thing is that if you try too hard, it's so such, apparent. Such terrible adjectives. And there are certain adjectives that I immediately said I will never use these adjectives. And in fact, if you look at my reviews, there's really, there aren't that many adjectives. They're really the basic ones like delicious, crispy, crunchy. There are certain ones like crunchy, crispy... They basically say it all, but like there's there's like thrill. I like never use this is thrilling. These asparagus are thrilling. Asparagus are never thrilling. Artichokes are never thrilling. Yeah, what else is on the uh... eatery? I never use eatery. That's not an adjective, but I don't. I just... No, that's the other thing is like you're talking about the same shit all the time, and so you have to eatery. figure out these I'm not synonyms. using it. I'm not using it. Toke, toke. They use that to say chef again and again, like the hat toke. Not saying toke. That's not coming. You're not going to read token a plant review, <laughs> but you're right about food description. Like describing food, some people can do it. Like um, 
Jonathan Gold, a great critic for the LA Times, is really a poet about food. If you read his stuff, he's like he just has this. He's just he's just a, a poetic genius when it comes to describing food in an original way. And that's all. It's all about originality. It's just very. When you're writing about a pork chop a hundred times, it's like very hard to have any original to say about it. The thing about most foods is you can just actually say what you you can just list the food. You don't have to say the glistening uni or the glistening pork chop. Just say the crispy pork chop. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it sounds tasty. It just sounds good. So, you, you know, you don't want to get in the way of that. You don't want to over it. You know, it's hard, really. It's hard. It, it's hard. But the, I think basically simpli- when it comes to describing food, simplicity is the best Is the best. Do you option. feel like, you're like uh, your style has changed over the years? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look back. I mean, I think... I think um, I think maybe the reviews might have changed a little bit. I think probably it was a little harsher in the beginning. Did you feel like you like some pressure to be harsh? Obviously, critics have to, and this is true of any critic. You have to 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 to, to create a sense of um, quote unquote integrity. You have to be negative occasionally, and most critics will uh, certainly in restaurants uh, will sort of pick who they choose to attack. In some cases, and it's, I, I find this is true for a lot of New York critics, uh, there's such a settled sort of hierarchy in the city, such a settled, this is more true in the old days, but it's still sort of true, there's a settled sort of restaurant hierarchy that they will avoid attacking uh, the uh, sort of sacred cows. And these are the great chefs, the great French chefs, the Daniel Bouloudes, the... Eric repairs. There's this sort of settled hierarchy, and everybody loves everybody. Everybody loves everything. So then, in New York, they'll tend to attack the out of town guys. I, I've noticed if you come at, coming from out of town in the restaurant world to New York is a hazardous business. And and, and, it's, and it's they so, do that because it's easier politically. It's easier, yeah, politically. I think this is my this is my theory. I don't know, and I've done it too myself. So I'm not gonna. I, so I went looking back through your archive. I didn't find a lot of like outright pans. Well, you're not going to find egregious pants, no. Is that a rule? Uh, like- I did some of the beginning, and then they felt sort of like, ah. You know, there's a lot of places that are just not good. And generally now, I'll just, I won't review them. Like, if you go and have a meal somewhere, and it's terrible. If it's really bad, like, I remember I went, one of the first places I went. Also, like, when I first started, I was going to all these crazy restaurants. Like, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was like, oh, yeah. I went to this restaurant, I remember, and it was a uh, Japanese restaurant, and it was uh, in the basement and, uh, you know, Japanese, obviously, Japanese cuisine, Tokyo's, like, food-wise, leaps and bounds the most, bounds the most sophisticated food city in, in the world, really. But when Japanese food is weird and bad, it's really weird and really bad. <laughs> so this guy, I asked for squid risotto. It's like, you're, also, as a critic, you're always asking for the weird stuff, like, squid risotto in a Japanese restaurant, that's, that, that, that's going to be strange. The thing that came to the table was this giant hollowed out squid filled with gummy, gummy, overly cheesy rice, like this porridge. And I was like, I can't eat this. This is not going to be good. I can't eat it. Also, at the same time, there was some there was some problem with their ventilation. So all the sort of kitchen smells were blasting out into the, you know, blasting out in the tiny dining room. And it was like, that was basically a restaurant, which I guess you could have panned. But it's like, Why? Because that, that's just like you'd be picking sort of like someone out of a lineup and then kicking them in the nuts. Why would you do that? So it, it, after a while, it becomes, you know, it becomes clear that you know, it's really sort of, certainly in New York, it's sort of like a Broadway 
season. Like there are certain big restaurants which will come along. Come and you along. and you have to weigh in on. And it. you figure it out. You figure it out. And what what I found, if you probably look back in my reviews, um, you'll find that um, I've written harsh reviews about restaurateurs who are are very good and talented, but but but, but have been around a long time. So they'll open one great restaurant, then maybe another great restaurant, but the third restaurant will be half great. And the the hype machine in food is such that like people will still be, especially with the internet, you know, which came on in the middle of what when I you know in the middle of my watch. There's this endless gas about this is all great, this is all fabulous. So I, to the extent that I think I'm, you know, look for stuff to do, I look to sort of prick a balloon here and there. And I've done it with a number of chefs, and then ultimately we'll end up liking their fifth restaurant or sixth restaurant. But um, you don't get like energized by a, writing a negative review. I feel like some critics I don't really like it. Take no. some pleasure in I a pain. I don't take. I don't, I don't take a lot of pleasure in. It. I mean, I, I don't think I, I, as a critic, can close a restaurant down. Certainly, the, the Times critic, whoever he or she may be, can do that. I certainly can't. I don't think. Do you think you can make a restaurant? Not really. Maybe. Not really. I can't think of any restaurants that I've made. I mean, there are restaurants, there are chefs that I've I've uh, uh, supported early on, but they've been discovered by other people. And also, the idea of discovering a, a chef now in New York is absurd. I mean, it's like uh, my reviews come out a month or two after the restaurants are open, but you know that that information is on the uh, online within within a day that the place is open. People have been talking about it. I'm, I'm always amazed now that. You know, any any place that I go to review is, is is packed with people. So they certainly didn't get there because of me. All right, I'm very interested in uh, how the internet has has changed your job because I uh, imagine its effect has been profound. But before we talk about that, there are some just like life of the restaurant critic questions mm-hmm. that must be asked. Mm-hmm. One is, how did you think about this sort of dance of being anonymous with chefs, like? You might not be able to make or break a restaurant, but you can come pretty close. Your review is super important to their business. Okay. And so how do you navigate sitting in their restaurant knowing with them knowing that you could make or break them? Well, again, I would dispute whether I can make or break okay. them. But you can anyway, 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 anyway. big impact. This whole, I've called it sort of the kabuki dance. I've written about it before. But this whole dance way predates me coming into the business. When For I sure. when I first came, when, but when I arrived, when I when I started doing this job, um, it was it was fairly well established. And it's still established to a certain extent. All the restaurateurs, certainly in New York, um, knew what all the critics looked like, and mostly because the stakes were so high that they they make it their business to know what know what you look like. Okay, so they when, when I first started to do this job, I went to some. I was reviewing a, a, a restaurant that's called Le Perigord. It's still there, classical French restaurant. They changed their chef, so I went went showed up. I'd been on the job two weeks, maybe three weeks. Like you said, I'm this great lumberjack sized guy, you know, huge bucket head. You said that. I said that. It's sort of true. It's hard for me to. I quickly, I quickly said, like, you know, I can't disguise myself. All right, this is not going to work. Yeah. If I, if I start wearing, did you, a, did you think about it? Like well, wearing a top so, hat? And... You're supposed, to, you're supposed to think about it. So you're supposed, not a top hat, but like, oh, uh, mutton chops. Yeah. I don't know a wig. I'm, I'm a balding gentleman, so maybe a wig or like glasses and 
Gail Green, again, Gail's affectation, and Gail was known by everybody far and wide. She was friends with many of the chefs. Um, her affectation was the hat. Okay, she always had a hat. She wore a hat. Peaked down over her eyes so you couldn't see who it was. So, of course, I never actually saw her wear a hat in a restaurant. Um, but I, she did, I know, wear lots of hats at a restaurant. Of course, when she was wearing those hats at the restaurant, she was the only person wearing a hat in the whole restaurant. So, of course, you knew the Gail was there. Anyway, but with me... You know, they. I didn't. I had not. I came to the job. I had not been in the food world. They didn't know who I was. Relatively anonymous figure. So I go to this restaurant, Le Perigord, uh, a very commanding uh, owner who was the maitre d' at the time. Uh, big gentleman in a tuxedo. I go for lunch. I meet my mother. My mother's a nice, uh, genteel Upper East Side lady. Loves restaurants like the Perigord. Meet her for lunch. Discreet. Uh, I show up. I go, I made a restaurant, and under, made a reservation under her assumed name. He leads me to a not very, this gentleman in the tuxedo, leads me to a not very nice table by the kitchen. Sit down. And I say one of the things that, you know, you say that I thought I would say, you know, to make you set yourself sound intelligent. I said, I said to him, so, so what's good today, monsieur? And he goes, after a little pause, he goes, you tell me, you're the critic. <laughs> So that was, was like, After uh, two weeks. All right. The jig is up. Most of the time, they don't say that. They know you. They don't say they've been, right, instru- but, they've been instructed not to and say. And you know they know you, but everyone pretends like you don't. And there's also this thing, like, if you, if you, if you tell the critic that you know that he's the critic, the critic will get mad. Uh, Ruth Reichel wrote this wonderful, famous, justly famous review of the Cirque, which you may, 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 may or may not have read. And in that review, it was a review of the Cirque from the perspective of Ruth Reichel, who goes not in a disguise and is fawned over by the, the, the wonderful staff there, who are, that's their job, is to fawn over people like Ruth Reichel. And then she goes disguised as, I think she called herself a bag lady, and they didn't know her, and they're like, you know, put her off in a corner. And so she writes this, this, this sort of two-way review of this famous restaurant, and the point of it is that if you're somebody, they, they're, they're nice to you, and if you're not, they're, you know, if they don't know you, they're not. And of course, the Sirio Maccioni, who, who, who ran, still runs Le Cirque, if you ask him, he'll tell you that they saw Ruth as a bag lady, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to disturb her. <laughs> and so he'll say, he was confused, and I, I mean, uh, outraged by the whole review. But the point that she makes is, is right. They do do that at those, those restaurants. Of course, they do it because, certainly at a, at a restaurant like Le Cirque, they do it because they make their money off of people who return. They make their money off the regulars. So the regulars really will get 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 extra treatment while, mm-hmm. the, while the, the, the people on the street will get treated well, but not, not as well. So anyway, the, the whole disguise thing, I think the disguise thing works in that situation. Uh, if you have restaurants that have been around a long time and you're like taking stars away or giving them or the whole stuff, we can talk about the whole star thing, but if you're like pretending, pretending to be this sort of omniscient objective power and you're uh, wanting to check into a place, then disguises work because they, they're not looking for you. Okay, But right. in, in the first three, four months, they are looking for you. They have people at the bars. They have spotters. There are pictures up everywhere. They're trained. So they're, look, they're, they're looking for you. And given the stakes involved, they're going to see you. They're going to find you. I think that if, and I think this is true, if they don't know you're coming... 
there's not very much you can do about it. And I just did this this talk with the, the interview with uh, Calicio, and he said the same thing. It's like, you know, once they're there, there's not there's not a lot you can do about it. If if, if you know they're coming, you can do stuff. Right. Otherwise, uh, you know. I don't care if he's disguised or not. It's going to be the same. Yeah, you can't really like cook the food better. Well, Caligio said he, and he was interesting. He said the worst thing you can do if you're the head chef is leap onto the line and start trying desperately to cook for the guy because like that, then all hell's going to break loose. Mm-hmm. You know, you've been preparing for this moment, and uh, it is what it is. You know, these are very, these are highly highly uh, sophisticated operations. They've been training for a long time. Sounds super awkward. Well, it's sort of, I don't know, you get used to it. I don't know, you get used to it. Now, frankly, and I did this whole thing where I came out, and my yeah. face was on the cover of the magazine. It was like, you and, ditched and, the and, anonymity. And, but the point of that whole piece, and I said it in that piece, was that now I'm going to tell you what New York restaurateurs have known for the last 10 years, that Adam Platt is this large, round-faced guy. He likes this kind of food. He likes that kind of food. They've all known it, but the public hasn't known it. The thing about the disguises stuff, it's a good story. Like it, it sort of clo- it sort of invests the whole critic with this sort of mysterious, you know, Wizard of Oz like aura, which is good. Frankly, it's good for the critic. It's like good right. for business. Right. But, but in reality, it, it again, unless you're going back to these restaurants, unless you're a Michelin uh, sort of uh, cloak and dagger guy who's you know returning to a twenty year old grand French restaurant and is going to take their star away. It doesn't really make a lot of difference, especially in New York, where for the first four months they're treating everybody like a critic in those restaurants. Right. Everybody is getting, there's, they're all regulars. They're all getting the most lavish service you can imagine. How many times do you go to a restaurant before you review it? Well, ideally, I'd say three or four. When, when you go, do you like go with a huge group of people and order everything on the like? No, I go. Um, here's various rules. Okay, so. Four people for me is the ideal amount, ideal number of people. If you have five, it turns into a party. You can't keep track of anything. Guests start, you know, interacting with each other and having a good time and ordering lots of wine. And it's like five, you can keep control of the situation. And I don't like to pass the plates around. I just like to give me a little taste of that, give me a little taste of that. So, you know, ideally you go, again, you, you go several times to sample the whole menu, right? So four, you go four times, you know, four people, three times. That's about right. Recently, I've been going two times because of budget constraints for the magazine. It still works well enough, I think. Well enough. What's your expense account? Uh, it's quite large, but it's getting smaller. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not what it was, but it's still it's still it's still enough. You can't actually tell me what it is, can you? Uh, it varies. You know, there, there's no cap. There's no cap. There would be a cap. But uh, so far, they haven't but told you, me you that there is a cap. You haven't hit whatever it is? Whatever it is, I haven't hit it yet. So two or three times, four people. Two or three people. times, four people. Um, I've come over the years to not hate. There are certain dishes that I find have this very settled flavor profile that can be cooked well, but taste-wise, there's not a lot you can do with them. It's like salmon. There's certain, and there's certain dishes like... It's, it, New York restaurants, they're all formulaic. You know, there's a, New York, for all its flourishes and ruffles and pretensions, they're a very meat and potatoes town. Like, New Yorkers like meat. They like steak. They like burgers. They like lamb chops. Salmon's there. Salad's there. You've got to get all these things in, right? So salmon, if I didn't see another piece of salmon for as long as I live, that would be fine. I love lamb chops, but lamb chops are, like, always cooked in a certain way. But, it's like, lamb is a very definite taste, it's like lamby. It's like a definite 
definite taste. So lamb, you know, lamb chop, eh, you know, they're always pretty good. So there's certain foods that don't excite me. I usually look for weird things to right. order, right. You like want, that like, squid I was talking about. Is that because you think that is what people will want to hear about, or just like it's fun to write about? You're bored. You're looking for it's like yeah. no, it's like that looks weird. Looks, let's, <laughs> you, let's don't wanna, you don't want to you don't want to use the adjective that also, lamby. That also tends to be why you have these restaurants, uh, the sort of uh, Farron Adria, El Bulli, uh, WWD50, you know, the Wiley Dufresne, you know. These are critics, just like in books and in theater, you have critic darling restaurants. And it's because critics get tired of the same old thing. They sort of find interest in the, you know, foam laced, you know, strange caviar construction. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, critics Do you are count like, yourself among that group? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then ultimately you get tired of it. But like if you see something new, you go, mm, that's good. That's right. interesting. I'll write about that. You're sitting there. The chef knows you're there. Yep. You're eating with your friends. Yep. Are you like taking notes at the table? Uh, when I started this job, I would take notes under the table. Of course, they saw that. They could see me, this giant hulking character, taking tiny little crimped notes under the table. Um, I n- would notice that my colleagues, say from the New York Times, would often get up repeatedly throughout the meal to go to the bathroom. What they were doing was taking taking notes in the bathroom and coming back. And of course the chefs saw all of us doing this all the time. Uh, when the iPhone came along, when the smartphone came along, I, t- I started taking uh, just notes ab- above board. And my wife, who comes out a fair amount, although not very much anymore, she's uh, become jaded, much more jaded than me. <laughs> the first time I took it out, maybe the second time, I like the phone because you can immediately send your notes off, and you, you, you can read. I, I can't read my handwriting. You, you can read. You can read. Read what you're you're saying. So she goes. You, know, you used to look like a restaurant critic. Now you just look like an asshole. <laughs> Do you feel intense pressure to make sure that you get everything right because you know that anything you get wrong is going to be like uh, used against you? Like that? yeah, actually, and also, am I lucky enough? to uh, have fact checkers at the magazine? Mm-hmm. They don't always catch everything. You I mean you must piss people off a lot. Maybe sometimes, but not all the time. Here's another. Here's the flip side of this. And Danny Meyer, who's I've, I've talked about, but Danny Meyer uh, runs uh, Union, Union Square Cafe, a series of, of of wonderful, very sort of classic classic restaurants downtown Manhattan. Uh, he opened just first, you know, was actually in the, in the early early aughts uh, when I first took this job. He opened a barbecue joint. Uh, all these chefs are. Uh, dabbling in comfort food, right? And uh, Meyer, who would then go on to open Shake Shack and make billions of dollars, uh, his first sort of dabbling in that was in barbecue, which he grew up in St. Louis. He loved St. Louis barbecue. Uh, so he opened a restaurant called Blue Smoke, which became a, uh, a semi-chain. And I went to Blue Smoke, and I didn't like it very much, so I gave it sort of a tepid review. Uh, Danny Meyer also happened at the time to have children who went to the same school that my kids went to. So I'm walking my kids to school. I drop them off. Here comes Danny. Danny's like suit and tie, Mr. Hospitality, big smile on his face. I go, oh, God, here comes Danny. And Danny comes right up to me, shakes my hand, and he goes, I want you to know that your review was extremely valuable, valuable to me and my team, and we're going to try and do a better job next time. And thank you for that review. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> 
What a gentlemanly <laughs> response. It was a very smart response. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't give Nanny a bad review for many years after that. <laughs> right. it, was very, it was a very smart response, a very tactically intelligent response. But it was also, it was also he's right. You know, it's never, it's not personal with the critic, at least not with me. And if you have somebody who's been around for a long time, you know, you, you should just treat it as an opinion, as a, as a sort of a... Is an informed opinion, and you know you can learn by it or you can't, but that, that's really what it is. It's an informed opinion. Any restaurant, I mean, the reality is that when we reviewed restaurants, two months into a restaurant, it's really even still a little early to be reviewing it. Uh, restaurants, most chefs, they'll probably tell you that I, I, when I talked to Tom Clickia recently, he said six months in is when a restaurant hits its, hits its sort of stride. I would say earlier than that, actually, certainly in New York. They tend to hit their stride three months, and they get reviewed, and then they go in the tank. <laughs> many, many, sounds... many of them go into the tank after that. That sounds true to me, that it's just an opinion. Like, I, it I, is an opinion. I understand your, like, uh, your urge to put that forward, but it feels like, like a, a bit of a dodge to me. When I'm saying that. Yeah, it's a bit of a dodge. Yeah, but it's it, my, but it is my opinion. I, well, it certainly is. But I'm not going to go to Danny. Hey, you're right, man. I was right. Those ribs were crap. <laughs> no, I know. But I'm I saying mean, about like, like your job in general. You are up on high and decreeing good or bad. I would hope maybe the reader would see it that way. Certainly, the critic doesn't see it that way. I mean, certainly, I don't see it that way. There are critics who cultivate this sort of sense of lordliness. Craig Claiborne was the original sort of, in, at least in the United States, Craig Claiborne for the Times, who invented this, the star system at the Times, cultivated this sense of Mandarin um, integrity and judgment, which I think is wonderful. From my perspective, you know, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving a judicious opinion on my experience at your restaurant. I wonder if that way of thinking about your job is informed at all by the fact that you are now living in an age in which everyone kind of considers himself a food critic. Like, you're, I think you're, you, I you're think a food you, critic in the age of Yelp. I think you might be right there. But, I mean, I've always thought about it this way, but I think it's it's more and more true. You know, it's more and more true. First of all, you're dealing with the cacophony of the Internet. You're also dealing with generally a much more informed dining population. Everybody... You know, they've all been to your Brooklyn watering holes. They've they've even been to the Le Bernardins and the Danielles, and they've actually sort of rejected them. But there's a, there's this sense of like, you know, people are uh, feel that they're in very entitled and very to have opinions, not just about the restaurant, but about you know where this uh, certain uh, you know rutabaga might come from, whether your salmon is has been farmed or is wild caught, on and on and on. There are all these criteria which people actually, you know, certainly the quote-unquote millennial generation takes it upon themselves to get educated about. So many more, it's, it's, a, it's a much more diverse, informed dining population these days. And also they've been trained to voice their opinions about everything all the time. <laughs> right. Now, but the, the all like critic, like me, I would argue, uh, just really sort of out of self-preservation, that in this sort of endless cacophony, it's nice to have the occasional sort of uh, lighthouse to sort of gaze at occasionally to get your bearings, this sort of old foghorn that has been there and is telling you what you, what you think about certain things. 
It may be that they're reinforcing your opinion. It may be that they're making your opinion, but it's nice to have an informed voice in a world. I mean, Yelp, I don't know about Yelp. Who, who would go to a restaurant based on Yelp reviews? Yelp is not really a great indicator of whether a restaurant's any good or not. Yelp, I think Yelp has really sort of replaced. Zagat's is still a great uh, tool, but Yelp has really replaced Zagat's as sort of, it's, it, it's just a compendium of places to go as opposed to actually telling you what's good or bad. I think a lot of people use it to do that. It, I'm not saying it's necessarily good at it. It's fast. It, what, where, where's this place? What's the address? Right. Go to Yelp. Well, in New York... I mean, you guys have tried to compete there. I mean, your your uh, restaurant guide is what my wife uses to find where to eat. Good. That's nice. <laughs> she trusts you. But people are actively trying to steal her away. Oh. Like who? Like Yelp. I mean, like... They, like What are they doing? Foursquare. Well, Foursquare is just like, here I am. What am I doing? Here I am. I'm here. Well, no, but they're, try- they're, they're, they're trying to turn it into a whole reviews uh, thing. It's all going to hell. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but do you think your job is going to hell? Like, do, do you well, think there is a... I am not going to say that on the record that my job is going to hell. Certainly, I would hope that my job would not go to hell. Critics, um, I think more and more, the sort of mantle of lordly opinion has been replaced by sort of an eager sense of, yeah, you want to develop a sense of conversation and of chatter. I think I think it's harder to do that in, rest, in, the, in restaurant land. I mean, you see, certainly you see, take New York Magazine, certainly you see... Uh, the TV critics and the movie critics and the art critics engaging in this back and forth with this sort of uh, their learned readers. Uh, you have it less with with the restaurant critics. Maybe it's because the restaurants are still more, a little more local and the restaurant restaurant public is more opinionated. Mm. And it's also because I think, like we were saying before, many of them don't go to the restaurants. They're just reading it. For, they're reading it for the vicarious pleasure and, and, and for the fun. Right, and the really intense, informed people might have already gone. They might have already gone. They might agree with you. They might disagree with you. Uh, but, you know, I, it's also like a, restaurants are like a multifaceted. It's not like, oh, I, I like this TV show or not. It's like restaurants are like, there's a lot going on in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, you know, you may like certain dishes, other dishes you don't like, the wine, you may be into the wine, you may be into the cocktail. There's a lot, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of, a, there's a lot of uh, room for opinion in restaurants. I'm really not trying to get you to like write your own obit here, but do you think magazines are going to be able to keep funding this work? Let me say, I certainly hope so. <laughs> but like, uh, I'll just, you're I on the record say, as hoping you, you will. I do certainly that hope job. so. But I've um, my job was described to me recently uh, as the last great job of the 20th century, and I think there might be something to that. Well, I hope you keep doing it for a while. Thank you, sir. Adam, thank you very much for coming in, man. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks so much to uh, Adam Platt for coming in and taking the time and making me very, very hungry. Uh, thanks also to our sponsors, Linda, Tiny Letty, Casper, and the good folks at Wealthfront. They're going to change the way that you manage your money. Go to wealthfront.com slash longform to get your first 10 grand managed for free. Thanks to them, and we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. The Current Podcast is back with an exciting new season featuring marketing executives from the world's most influential brands. Tune in to hear what's driving conversation in the fast-moving world of digital advertising with unique insights from brands as diverse as Hilton, Instacart, Moderna, Major League Soccer, and more. And in this presidential election season, The Current explores what a national political advertiser like the National Republican Senatorial Committee and a major CPG brand like Hershey can learn from each other. Listen in and subscribe to The Current at thecurrent.com or wherever you get your podcasts.